You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. There is so much creativity happening right now. We have all become artists in this time of isolation. From viral videos of family sing-alongs and what feels like the great global bake-off, to musicians playing remotely and then magically sounding like an orchestra, and groups of friends raiding the backs of their wardrobes to fashion costumes for digitally communal play readings. Many of us suddenly have a lot of time on our hands. Though, let's remember too all the millions of people who do not have time on their hands, but are rather putting in extended hours to keep us safe, healthy, and served with utilities and groceries and emergency services. And let us keep in mind all those people who are scared and worried about the loss of their jobs and safety nets and for whom this extra time is about anxiety. But across the world, the sequestered are finding solace in one of the things that truly defines us as humans, making art. Cynically, one might wonder if all of the cakes, sourdough loaves, verses, songs, duct tape sculptures and camera obscura photography is an avoidance of housework or closet tidying, but I don't think so. This outpouring feels more like a primeval urge to express ourselves through the arts, because it isn't only existing artists who are creating. We are all responding to the need to subjugate our uncertainty and fear by making and sharing art. And I count myself in that group. Suddenly, I felt the need to create another radio show a way of gathering the world together to remember that we are all in the same boat right now. Separated by oceans, borders, and now sequestration, we are all in this new normal together. We can't travel physically, but we can travel in our imagination. I called my new show One World, Same Boat, and episode one just came out this week with audio postcards from London, Stockholm, Geneva, Shanghai, Bangkok, Sydney, and Auckland. And if you want to have a listen, you can find it, for now at least, on the Speaking of the Arts page on the KOPN website. We might hope that when this is over, financial support for the arts is elevated so that we can truly fund the talent that exists within. Ensuring that all children have access to an arts programme, that actors and artists and writers and musicians are able to earn a living wage, and that when it is time to remind our political leaders what is important to us, we remember how critically we need well-funded healthcare and arts. So, where are we going this week? Well, this week I am particularly excited about the world of films from my sofa as there are two incredible movies opening at Ragtag this Friday slash today, which I really want to see. And here to add even more excitement to the mix is Ragtag Cinema's director, Barbie Banks. Hello, Barbie. 
Hello, how are you? <laughs> I am so excited for your movie's opening. I literally got goosebumps watching the trailer for Slay the Dragon because immediately oh, I, I felt like I was in a giant theater at True Falls watching this really this really powerful documentary that was inspiring and anger arousing. And I was watching it with 1100 other people. It just has true <laughs> false written all over it. Yeah. I mean, that's the hope that we, we want people to still feel that with these virtual screening rooms, even when you're at your home, know that there's a whole bunch of other people watching it and getting riled up, especially with this one being so political and, you know, news of elections and everything around this time that it, it really got me riled up too. So. <laughs> so so give us a precy of it. Tell us what it's about. So Slay the Dragon is about gerrymandering and the effect that that has, and then the people who are trying to fight it. And it's just really inspirational. It has some great characters in it who are I don't know. I feel like saving our democracy. <laughs> I'm a little bit more left-leaning though. So <laughs> I think part of it was a little nerve-wracking watching it because I do feel like our democracy is hanging in this weird pandemic time. And so I'm just glad there's people who that is their job to like watch it and keep it safe and fix it too, you know? So yeah, it's good. It's really good. And it does have a true false feel to it. You could picture it in the Missouri theater and people cheering whenever the subjects came out. And so, yeah, it's going to be pretty great. I think it was described somewhere as the most important political film of the decade, which is Ooh, yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty huge. Yeah. It reminded me <laughs> a lot of Knocked on the House from last year, True False 2019, and just the excitement and um, I don't know, rejuvenation of people wanting to help keep our democracy safe and run for office and things like that. So, And it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in April last year, which just shows how long things take yeah. to get out to the public and how when we go to True False, when we see these films, we're, we're getting such a sneak preview of things that no one else may see for up to a year. So this one Tribeca got, you know, a year ago. And now, yeah, yeah. Now we're I know, I think it. people forget that. I think they think we're, you know, a little town in Missouri. And so the films we get at True False are at the end of their best run, but really they're at the beginning. And we're the first people in the country to see some of these films in the world too. And so it's sometimes hard not to take that for granted in Columbia, Missouri, because we're so used to it. <laughs> but we are, it is special here for us. So Slay the Dragon is a film that I really want to have that post-watch discussion with, you know, a la True False. Do you have any plans to do a viewing where people get to comment? So um, it's in the works. We have been talking to the university, the Kinder Institute, to talk with them about having someone to, you know, kind of put context around this film and um, answer those questions. So that's in the works. Um, the university has been such a good partner through this. And we had a really good screening of National Treasure, which not the same type of film, but <laughs> some good topics in there. And so that's kind of the plan is to get somebody to discuss why this film is important what gerrymandering, how it affects Missouri, and um, give us a little help understanding even more. Perfect. So keep your eyes out for that. The next film is completely different. And again, <laughs> just is so fascinating. So movie number two is called The Whistlers, uh, which again, just incredibly compelling. It has yeah. an 83% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So I know, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about The Whistlers. So it's a um, a thriller about a whistleblower who then is trying, it's sort of a 
what, what's the right word? I'm like blanking on the right word. <laughs> it's a thriller <laughs> where this gentleman who's a whistleblower himself is learning a new language of that is whistles to help get someone out of prison to find 30, I think $30 million. So it ha- it's like a heist film almost where they have to, you know, complete this one task to get to the other one. And so it's going to be really interesting. It's from Romania, which we don't often see a ton of films out of Romania, which is kind of cool to see a new culture. And yeah, it's one that we've been waiting on for a long time. Like we saw the trailer a long time ago. It came out of Cannes last year. And um, so it's been suspenseful. And we've been showing the trailer. We showed it in the theater and then we showed it virtually um, last week. And so we're ready to get it out for everybody. Right. The director is Cornelio Poromboyu and he is Romanian director. And yeah. um, what is fascinating to me about this was I was I was reading a review about it and um, there was a link to something called El Silbo Gomera, which means is it's the whistles of this island called La Gomera in the Canary Islands. So the whistling language that they use in the film is a real thing. Yes. And it is so fascinating. I'd never heard about it before. It's on this one island in the Canary Islands off the coast of Morocco. And there are two vowels and four consonants. And they teach it in schools because it was dying out. And um, so the kids learn it. They can say things like, can you open the window? Or I'm coming over with some sheep. I mean, they, it's a complete <laughs> language using yeah. these whistling sounds. And it is so incredible to watch it. And I think uh, Poromboyu said that he he was attracted to the strangeness of the language and the kind of poetry of it. Um, but then, you know, it, it becomes a heist film and it kind of deviates right. from there. But the, the background to this film is just so fascinating that this whistling language of La Gomera is a, is a real thing. Now right. I now I want to go there and listen to it. <laughs> I know, exactly. Yeah. And I find it fascinating of languages like that that are dying out and then you know, groups that don't allow them to die out, which is pretty cool. And yeah, I think that's going to be one of the most fascinating parts of this film outside of the excitement around the heist is that we get to see him learn some of this language and hear it ourselves, which is pretty great. And the main actor is a guy called Vlad Ivanov, I guess, again, a Romanian actor who is described as a kind of Balkans J.K. Simmons. So (laughs) he's the main guy in it. (laughs) Yes, it's fun to, we were talking about that with the movie Parasite, where um, the guy who played the dad of the rich family is like their George Clooney in South Korea. And so it's, you know, funny to compare that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, so, yeah. Give it a different context. So the, the New York Times wrote about this film, The The chronology is splintered, the colors are bright, the plot intricate. There are picturesque non-Romanian settings and music on the soundtrack, starting with Iggy Pop's The Passenger, all of it in the service of a thriller involving a hard-boiled cop, femme fatale, and an international crew of gangsters. Ooh, I know. Doesn't it make you want to rent it right away? Yes, it absolutely does. I can't wait till Friday. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah, and we're, I'm again, just really thankful for this distributor, Magnolia, who we work closely with to be putting this out there. And we'll get 50% of the cost back to us, which is really helpful. And I hope everybody enjoys it and gets to um, something we can talk about when we all come out of isolation. <laughs> and all those links are on the Ragtag website. So we can just yes, click on correct. it. Okay. And then yes. the third film you have, which is just showing on <laughs> Saturday night. We can't be too highbrow here. We have to also show um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. And so it's a film from 1991. 
And, you know, at the time, the Ninja Turtles were huge and they've kind of made a comeback. But this one is the second one. And we'll have some funny commentary throughout the film again on Twitch. And so you'll be able to enjoy this uh, silly film, but also hear from our ragtag people as we comment on how great this film is. So So again, with, with these show and tell films, we need to acquire, rent, get Correct. The yes. movie, and then we go on a different device. We go to twitch.tv slash rectag, and then we can hear it's Kyle from Hit Records, right? Yes. It's yes, <laughs> one of them. Yeah. <laughs> giving his kind of his commentary over, right, the, yes. over the top of it. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, here. So here, um, uh, here's some trivia things. Let's see how you do on these. <clears throat> okay. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. So Splinter. The character uh-huh. Splinter in the movie is voiced by Kevin Clash. Who else was Kevin Clash the voice of? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. Elmo in Sesame Street. Oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and then Robbie Rist, who plays Michelangelo, who voices Michelangelo. What famous family sitcom or family drama was, uh, was Robbie Rist in? I have no clue. He was Cousin Oliver in The Brady Bunch. Oh, really? Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I always watch The Brady Bunch on uh, MeTV at my house. So <laughs> that's awesome. Two random bits of trivia. Me and my siblings, we were, you know, in our, we, my brother was 10 and he got a, my mom is a hair, was a hairstylist and she shaved a Ninja Turtle into the back of his head. And so we were like huge Ninja Turtle fans. So I'm very excited to be showing this and it's going to be really silly. Yeah. So Kyle from Hit Records, Tony, who's one of our projectionists, and then a guest all the way from LA, Ashley Nagel will be doing, um, you know, funny commentary throughout it. And it's on Netflix. So a lot of people have Netflix and um, you can just pop it up there and watch this ridiculously silly film <laughs> i watched national treasure last week i was a little bit behind everybody else so i couldn't really get like get in on the commentary but uh it was just so much fun to think we were all watching the same thing like kind of the one read when we all read the same right. book i love that we're yeah. all watching the same movie yeah and everyone was commenting like what they would be ordering at uprise if we were in the theater which was fun it makes me happy i miss that place so much that it makes me happy that so does the columbia community yeah, we're we're all still together virtually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's three big things. We have opening on Friday. We have the Whistlers heist drama, and then we have an amazing documentary, Slay the Dragon, about gerrymandering. And then on Saturday night, one night only, is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and it's the sequel film called The Secret of the Ooze, <laughs> and that's on Saturday at seven thirty. It's a little later. The pre-show is at eight thirty, and the film starts at nine. Perfect. That's better than yeah, seven. Yeah. That works better. Yeah, it's a little easier. <laughs> then our commentators can be a little um a little raunchier if they went with the <laughs> <laughs> They were worried about kids last time. So <laughs> And on that note. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you so much, Barbie. I'll see you next yes, week. Thank you. Bye. Our next hopping off point today is Skylark Bookshop and this month's Como magazine cover model, Alex George. It's been a pretty big week for you, Alex. Yes, yes, I'm still recovering from the uh, <laughs> the amount of teasing that I've received. 
So this week you announced that your soon-to-be-released novel, The Paris Hours, has racked up enough nominations by independent booksellers across the country that is on their top 20 indie next great reads list. And the audiobook of The Paris Hours is on the pre-order bestseller list with the audiobook company Libro FM. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been a good week. There, there's there's been some fun stuff going on, which is always you know the time ahead of publication can be a little nerve wracking, and and often there isn't much to do, and you're there twiddling your thumbs. But I've at least had some good news to share, so that's been been great. Yeah, all of that and Coverman. So I guess the question is, you know, which one is the most meaningful? <laughs> Well, obviously, you know, it's been a, a long-held dream of mine to uh, be a cover model. So um, that's when I can tick tick off my list now. Yeah, I was a cover model a few years ago on Columbia Business, I think it was, or something. Uh-huh. And it was pretty exciting, I've got to say. I've still got them lying around. I mean, <laughs> still living large on that. Well, my son is my son is uh, mowing lawns at the moment. And uh, he sent me a picture yesterday of, of the, the magazine in somebody's trash can (laughs) so there was a moment a moment of hubris (laughs) so and before we get into this week's books a question about the world of audiobooks and the conversations that go on about who gets to read and record the books how much does the author have a say in that well, it varies. Um, I mean, I've been very lucky in that with all three of my audiobooks, I've had quite a lot of say about who it is. And the guy who has done the audio for the Paris Hours is a wonderful actor who who is English, um, but has clearly spent time in France because his French accent is impeccable, as they say. And so it's been fun to to listen to him. And it's, it's always very weird when you listen to your own book read by somebody else and and all authors have different sort of thresholds of how much they can take before they have to turn it off. But uh, he said he did a nice job, and uh, it's been it's been kind of fun to sort of because it's an interpretation, of course. You know, even if the words don't change, where you choose to pause and emphasize, uh, all the, all of those decisions do add up to the overall to the the effect when you listen to it. So I always enjoy listening to at least a little bit of it, and he's done a wonderful job. So I'm I'm very happy. So anyway, so back to the books that are out this week. What do you have for us this week? So there, there are two new books that I wanted to talk about, and they both just felt sort of appropriate given these times that we're in, but for entirely different reasons. One is a beautiful novel by Jennifer Rosner called The Yellow Bird Sings. And I was actually lucky enough to read an early galley of this and in fact I gave a blurb so my name is on the back which is not why I'm suggesting it I'm suggesting it because it's a beautiful book it's set in World War II and um, it tells the story of a mother and a child who are Jewish and who are hiding from the Germans and the reason why it's so such a compelling story is that the daughter is is a musical prodigy but they have to be utterly silent 24 hours a day and they're trapped in a barn and they can never leave so you can probably see where I'm going here thematically and so it just struck me as you know I mean it's a wonderful book to read and it's quite beautiful but but just in the times when we're all sort of under these stay-at-home quarantine orders it just had a particular resonance um, which which I thought was interesting and uh, the sense of claustrophobia that you get from reading the book and, and imagining it is almost overwhelming. 
but it's it's really lovely and uh i think that a lot of people are you know looking for ways to escape and you can escape geographically but you can also escape in terms of, sort of shifting to a different time period and, and so that's um that's one. I saw a review for Jennifer Rosson's book. It said, prepare to have your heart broken by this moving tale of a mother who has to make an unbearable decision in order to save her child. So we probably should have our, our hankies at the ready. Yeah, I think that's probably a good move. Yeah, it's not exactly a laugh a minute for sure, but it's a beautiful book. So the next one is also a World War II book, but entirely different. And it's The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson, um, who's best known, like, uh, probably best known still for The Devil in the White City. Um, this is a non-fiction historical account of the bombing of London in 1940, and it focuses particularly on Churchill. And um, Larson is a wonderful storyteller. He, uh, he's also a very, very well-regarded historian and is very, uh, so he immaculately sources everything. So if there is a line of dialogue in there or there's a description of a facial tick or a gesture he hasn't made it up he's got that from some primary sources that he says so you know that everything that you read actually happened and um, very much the central character in all of this of course is Winston Churchill who just comes across as this well I mean you know, Churchill, we all, we all think we know what he's like. And, and, and this just sort of reinforces it. And he's just there, but with, with bells on. And uh, it's a wonderfully entertaining story. It's a story that, you know, we all know to a greater or lesser degree. Probably you and I know it better than some people, Diana, but it's wonderful fun. And again, it's a sense of a, I mean, I'm actually listening to it on audio and the person who, who tells the story does a wonderful job of it. And he's a, he does the voices and this sort of Churchwellian sort of gruffness. And it's all, it's all highly, highly entertaining. Um, but there is a sense of the nation, where I am at the moment, is the, the nation is waiting for this aerial bombardment to, to begin. And there's a sense of everybody sort of in it together. And again, it just, it just resonated with me uh, in terms of where we are with COVID-19, in terms of, you know, we are all in this together, and it's, uh, again, it's a common enemy. And, and the sense of community that arose in Britain at that time is, I think, sort of, you know, similar in a way to, to the way that we're seeing things change here and how, how neighbours are, are behaving. And it, it was, it was it's, it's been great and really kind of inspiring as well. So both of those books, you know, in a strange way, sort of have echoes of where we are now. And how important great leadership is. And I think it's interesting in Eric Larson's book that I think he talks about how Hitler was terrified about Germans listening to Churchill's speeches because they were so inspiring. And mm -hmm. he decided that it was going to be a treasonable crime if they found Germans listening to Churchill's recordings because they were so powerful. Yeah. And then, you know, he, I mean, of course, as we all know, he was an extraordinary orator. You know, he wasn't a man without faults by any stretch of the imagination. One of the things about this book is that it beautifully sort of illustrates that. And he does come across as a fully formed character. And certainly, you know, it does raise issues of leadership and uh, what strong leadership in a crisis looks like. And uh, 
that's been, again, is an, another element to the whole thing, which has been very interesting in these times. I wanted to ask you one last question about that before we close. I was reading the New York Times review of the book, and uh, I don't know if this is a photograph from the book, because I, I haven't seen the physical copy of the book, but there is a, a picture on the New York Times review, a photograph from the archives, and it is titled, Keeping a Stiff Upper Lip at a Library During the London Blitz. And it's a totally bombed out library or bookshop. You can see the sky, you can see the shelves of books, and there are three men in bowler hats perusing the shelves, just like, you know, choosing books, like it was just like still open as a library. Every other, every other day, yeah. <laughs> I wonder well, like, what, what that makes you feel like, thinking of, you know, a beautiful bookshop just bombed. Um, well, I haven't seen that photo. It was one of the one of the things about listening to audiobooks is you don't get to see all those glossy pictures that they stick in the middle, which is a shame. Um, that doesn't surprise me, though. I mean, that sounds very British to me, doesn't it? I mean, it does. <laughs> <laughs> all right, dear. Well, thank you so much for another little tour of books that are coming out. Eric Larson's The Splendid and the Vile and Jennifer Rosner's The Yellow Bird Sings, both of which are available for delivery from Skylark Bookshop. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Diana. Next, we're off to visit the fine arts. This week, making her debut on this new age of quarantine, speaking of the arts, is the director of the George Caleb Bingham Gallery on the University of Missouri campus, Catherine Armbrust, along with artist Diana Temple, whose graduate thesis show would have been on the walls of the Bingham Gallery right now were it not for a very small but incredibly mighty virus. Hello, Catherine and Diana with two N's. Hello. <laughs> Diana, thanks for having us on. It is a delight. I like to to cover all of the arts each week and uh, we've been visiting with Hannah Reeves at the Sega Browdis Gallery for the last two weeks and I thought I saw your post about Diana's show at the Bingham Gallery and it was so intriguing that I really wanted to do something about it on the show. So Catherine first of all how are you adjusting to this new normal? Oh my goodness it has been a lot of pivoting and flexing but we're getting it figured out. Luckily I'm able to use a lot of social media outlets for the gallery and I've been working with Diana and then Rihanna, who's another grad whose work is kind of coming up now to figure out how we can best market their show while also holding space for them as soon as the gallery can reopen because we want to actually show the work in person once we're able to all be together again. Right. So this, it's not canceled. It's just postponed in effect. In my heart, that's what um, we are planning. Yes. So Diana, with two N's, just to differentiate yeah. from Diana with one N, um, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. What's been the most challenging part of presenting your thesis online rather than in person? Well, I spent a long time making cherry frames for all of my work, <laughs> and it's hard to uh, show that because I haven't been able to photograph the work in an installation. And um, it's just um, harder to see the work in the way that you intended it online, but it's been really great that there's been a lot of outlets for it. Well, and, and two of your pieces, Diana, too, are interactive. So it depends on the viewer, like, touching the work in order to really fulfill its function. We'll, we'll come back yeah. to the presentation a little bit later on because that is super interesting. But your show is in two parts and it's called Wheelchair Tornadoes and Other Things Our Eyes Cannot See. Tell us about the two different parts of the show. So the one part is um, black and white mostly like black and white portraiture. And there's a lot of portraits of these wheelchair tornadoes, which uh, is my friend Matt Ebert spinning in his wheelchair. And then there is another whole part that are these blue pictures that were based on um, me going around the landscape and looking for blue in the landscape as signs, because I used to look for blue signs 
with my sister because my sister has a disability. So I would kind of look around the landscape and try to look for signs to park and things like that. So I took that as a metaphor for my photography. It's funny because I had seen that body of work with the blue images, the blue parts of the built environment. And it's really striking. And when I was walking the dog this morning, I saw somebody, uh, they were re-shingling the roof and they had a big blue tarp over it. And it was such a perfect picture to go with your series. So your background, Diana, also you are an occupational therapist and you've worked as a Special Olympics coach. What was the impetus for going back to grad school and doing the show? I got to speak a lot with people and I, I um, had to just listen to people because I was a therapist and you're not allowed to like photograph or, or share stories directly with people that are your clients. Um, and so I was taking all of this information in and I had an undergraduate degree in art and there's just so much that I wanted to say and tell. And, and um, since I am a sibling of someone with a disability, I've also um, lived in the disability community my entire life. And I just had more to say about it, about um, the relationship between able-bodied and disabled people and um, some of the experiences that um, I saw happening in the community. You write that so much is put on the shoulders of disabled people and the people around them. The problems that exist are often invisible. People are invisible. This project is about that and about the power dynamic between the photographer and the subject. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, Matt Ebert, who is the subject in this project, um, he would share with me lots of stories about um, how he felt when he meets people and walking down the street and such. And um, sometimes like the wheelchair makes you feel invisible because people will just pass you by and try not to look at you and not to see you and different things like that. And then there's this whole other part of the environment where things that people with disabilities have to go through on a daily basis are kind of invisible to people that don't have to deal with those things. Um, so they're talking about invisibility in multiple ways. And you talk about there being kind of a bit of a taboo about able-bodied people photographing disabled people and you have an opinion about that. Explain that for us. Yeah, so th there's a rich history of the freak show and the medical model and people photographing the disabled body and it's become kind of a, a taboo to be able-bodied and photograph someone with a disability because you're taking their agency or something like that. But I'm trying to look at it in a different way and I think that people would be erased if they're not allowed to be modeled and not allowed to be, participate in portraiture like this. And so I think that it's very important for disabled people to tell their own story, but I also think it's very important for able-bodied people to include people with disabilities in their work. So tell me about Matt Ebert and how you met him and how this whole thing got started. I met Matt, the Boone County and Family Resources search for some volunteers and Matt volunteered to work with me. And he kind of became an instant friend. <laughs> And he had a black and white photograph of a silver gelatin print hanging on his wall. So that's why I decided to use the four by five view camera for this project with him. And um, we just kind of have a, 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 like our personalities just fit really well together. And he let me experiment and he didn't make me feel uh, weird about trying different things. <laughs> and he was just really willing to um, always be available and be involved in my project. So talk about what a wheelchair tornado is. Describe that for us. I'm going to put a photograph up on our Facebook page so people can go and look at it and see what you're talking about. But describe it for us a little bit. So a wheelchair tornado, it's kind of, um, it's called like a tableau photograph. So it's more of like a performance. So that performance in itself is, is kind of describing the way that um, we're spending time together. And Matt is either spinning or tilting his chair back or going in a specific direction in the photograph. 
and then the camera, the shutter is open for that time and it's recording the, the movement and the performance that Matt is doing. How much was he involved with the artistic direction of the photographs? Oh, he was very involved. <laughs> he would let me come up with a lot of ideas and things like that, but he would he was just so willing to do whatever and he came up with ideas too. And we did this for an entire year. So this began in January 2019 and went all the way to the beginning of this year. I like that you said that he encouraged you to experiment and said, you'll have to dig a lot deeper into your bag of weird to scare me off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> how, how weird did it get? <laughs> well, I mean, we were doing these things um, in public places. So it, it was more like it was weird for people that were like in parks and different things that were viewing what we were doing. Because I had this big four by five view camera. And then, you know, like in the one picture with Matt with the mask on, so he's wearing a mask. I'm under this dark cloth and like people are just staring at us. <laughs> Catherine, quickly, what's that? What's your take on the show? I um, am so excited about it. I've been watching Diana's work obviously evolve for the last three years that she's been in the program. And every time she's installed something in one of the, our group shows, her work is always installed at a 54 inch on center height, which really reinforces the project when you're a viewer in the gallery, because it's at such a different height from the rest of the work that's usually installed there. And we have actually been adjusting some of our heights in the gallery to kind of take on that idea of making the making viewing more accessible. So thank you, Diana, for that, because that sort of reinforce that with me too as the gallery director. But I'm super excited to obviously get back in the gallery at some point soon and to see the work installed so that people can really interact with it. Um, because I think it's a, an important community-based project. I agree. Just quickly before we close, describe the frames. There are a couple of frames that you say are interactive. So depending on where your face is, as a viewer, the, the work moves. Yeah. Um, so I worked with uh, the University of Missouri Engineering. I had a group of students that built the frame and they were able to make it interactive in a way that it would be able to read the viewer's face. And then the frame then reacts to that and then moves to your uh, height level. And then it doesn't require the use of your hands, um, which is something important in universal design for people with disabilities. So it gives more access. To the art. Fantastic. Well, I really hope that we get to see it sometime over the summer. Catherine and Diana, thank you so much. Catherine, I hope you'll come back and tell us about some future shows that are coming up during this time of sequestration. I would love to because we do still have stuff coming up for sure. So thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, Diana and Catherine. The next stop on our arts tour today is to the place where I get exposed to low-grade torture. In other words, it's Improv 101 with Kathleen Johnson from The Stable Boys and Adam Bretzky from Talking Horse Productions and the short-form improv group The Ponies. Hello, Adam and Kathleen. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Well, you know, I always get a little nervous at this point in the show because I know I'm going to have to do something that I'm uncomfortable about. But first question for both of you. Did you seek out improv or did it find you? What about you, Adam? Yeah, so, um, you know, theater has always been in my family and improv specifically. When I was very young, my parents put me in a ton of theater camps. And I remember just really being enamored by the idea of once I stepped on stage, I could be anybody that I wanted to. And so I took kind of a liking to improv pretty early on. I, I love shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway? And 
in all our theater camps, we'd always start with improv games to kind of get the creativity flowing. And I just remember feeling at like five years old thinking, man, if I could just do this all day, that would be okay. Kathleen, what about you? So I dabbled in improv here and there growing up. Um, but I would say like as an adult, more, I don't know, professionally, if you will, I I stumbled upon uh, the troupe that I started with in Minneapolis as a Groupon that um, <laughs> I bought for my parents who were coming up to visit and helping me out with some stuff that we just like did together. And I saw them and I thought they were hilarious. And I was like, I wonder if they have auditions. So I messaged them and they said, yes, we do come audition. And that led to my next troupe, which led to the next one, which led to the next one. And, and all of that um, in terms of like my performance of improv. But from an educational standpoint, yeah, I've been, I sought improv out as a way to combine my love of theater and my love of teaching together. So you've really been doing improv for a lot of years. Yes. I have. So I started like the very first improv class I ever took uh, was in high school. I did improv in high school. And then I joined a, a troupe when I was in college. And that's when I also started teaching improv as well. And in college, I got involved with some corporate improv and then took that. So I would say, gosh, five years. <laughs> that's so sweet you're adorable no I've been doing improv since I would say like for the past probably 20 years and and definitely I guess it's one of those things that you get better at over time yes hopefully <laughs> okay well okay so we're, this week is week three of my improv lessons so yeah. tell me what we're going to do this week yeah I thought this week we would talk about a little something called gift giving and you know that's one of my favorite things because everybody likes receiving gifts uh, but when we talk about gift giving and improv, there's a couple of different things that we mean. So first of all, gift giving could be helping you create the scene or the character that you might be by offering you a specific suggestion. In short form improv comedy, sometimes gift giving is uh, giving you that wink and nudge as you try to guess what it is that we are getting at. And so Kathleen and I have come prepared today mm -hmm. with a little game called the uh, Press Conference. And uh, Diana, since you mentioned that this is uh, low-grade torture, we figured that uh, we would put you in the most prominent role. Oh, great. So here's how this is going to work, Diana. You are <laughs> going to be giving a press conference to all of your listeners right now. But here's the catch. You don't know what the press conference is about, and you don't know who you are. You're going to determine that by, after you make your announcement, you will uh, open up the floor to questions. And Kathleen and I are going to ask you different questions that will hint at who you are and why you're holding a press conference. And uh, we'll see if by the end of the segment, you can figure out who you are. Okay. Okay. This is definitely moving up the low-grade torture to middle-grade torture, I can see. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'm going to start with the press conference. Uh, ladies and gentlemen of the press, thank you so much for being here today. I must admit, I wasn't expecting to give a press conference today. I was hoping that things were all going to go smoothly, but you know, best laid plans and all that. So let me go straight to questions. Uh, can I have a question ooh, from the ooh, floor? Ooh, ooh. Ooh, yes, ooh. CNN, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a question. Um, I'm just wondering if you feel uh, that you have done your country proud. Like, have you I made will... your own country proud of you? 
Oh my goodness. I mean, that's, that's all I think about all, all day is, is how I can represent the people of my country and, uh, and be there for them and answer their questions and, and truly be a, a helpful person in a time, in these times of need. Did a uh, follow-up question, real quick follow-up. Uh, did you sew the um, the tea and crumpets onto your outfit or were they done for you by someone else? I, I'm, uh, my mother did that, that for me. She's an amazing seamstress. So, you know, she, she sews all my clothes. You may have noticed some of the flowers and things I have on other, other clothing. I, I mean, my favorite one is my little dress that I have with a flower on the pocket. And my mother said that if I touched the flower and made a wish, it would come true. <laughs> you know, some days that seems to work, but mostly, mostly not. Uh, Columbia Daily Tribune. Yeah, uh, listen, I had a question. Who exactly motivated you to do this? Would, would you say it was all your fans? Maybe, I know you had a conversation with the queen. Did, uh, did the dancing queen encourage you to do this? Uh, pretty much ABBA is the basis for everything that I do in, in my life. Um, they have guided me from college onwards, really. I mean, that's, that's why I speak Swedish. So Dancing Queen, um, Waterloo, all, all of those classic ABBA songs have, have really guided me. Um, uh, excuse me. Uh, I am from the uh, Optometrist Quarterly and uh, I just wonder if you have any comment for our fans who were wildly disappointed when it turned out that your show has absolutely nothing to do with uh, glasses or contact lenses or any sort of uh, vision-like elements. Uh, what do you have to say to them? Um, I, I think they're a small niche group and I'm not really that bothered about them. Sorry, Optometrists Weekly, I'm gonna have to dismiss you. Ooh, that, wasn't, that wasn't a very nice question. Ooh. Uh, Gary Mason, Daily Bugle here. Uh, so you last won this competition in 1974. Do you think you can do it again? Well, I was hoping to do it again this year, but unfortunately, the Eurovision Song Contest was cancelled due to the coronavirus. So um, as, <laughs> as a member of, of the original ABBA group, um, uh, as, uh, as Frida probably, because I don't have long, long hair <laughs> as Frida, I'm obviously hugely disappointed, but, um, I think we'll be back. I mean, I'm excited for Rotterdam 2021. Yay. Awesome. You got it. So Good Diana, for everybody, tell us who you were and what the press conference was about. Um, I Yes, I well, I'm going to say I was Frida in ABBA and I was giving a press conference about the cancellation of the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah, I, I'll give that to you. I think that was mm -hmm. pretty close. We said that you were actually going to be returning to the Eurovision Contest in the next year. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, close enough. So that was fun. Tell us what kind of gifts do you feel like Kathleen and I gave you that helped you figure out the puzzle? Um... Definitely Dancing Queen was the key one. I've no idea what the optometrist one was about. I still remain confused by Optometrist Weekly. Sorry, I was trying to play a joke on vision, Eurovision. <laughs> oh. Um, that I was gift my head. might have been more for me than it was for you. <laughs> I apologize. I mean, I liked it. <laughs> 
for for a minute I thought maybe I was a politician that I was representing and then the yeah. queen I'm like am I Boris Johnson but then I'd be sick well so, and you know. so maybe I'm just rationalizing my own choice here but one of the fun things about this game um in practice is that it helps you get used to how to help out your partners in a scene but in in performance, when you're doing it in front of an audience, the gifts that you give are not just to the other improviser to help them figure it out, but they're also gifts and nuggets to the audience who know, who would have also been in on the joke with Adam and I. They would have known who you were supposed to trying to be figure out. And so it becomes fun to, to kind of do the thing that everyone else knows about. Now, that's really not what I was doing. It was way out of left field, but you know, you try. <laughs> Well, that was fantastic fun. Thank you so much, Adam Bretsky, Kathleen Johnson, for my improv lesson this week. We'll be back next week with more torture. I guess we're in the medium grade now, so you can up the game a little bit. I feel like, you know, I'm getting, getting used to this now. By the end oh, of yeah. it, we're going to put you up on stage. You do know that, right? <laughs> Woo! Well, uh, long may the coronavirus sequestration last in that case. <laughs> Thank you, guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye. The last stop on our Friday tour of the arts in sequestration is to the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. Each week, either Trent Rash, the symphony's executive director, or its development director, Monica Palmer, take us on a backstage tour of some of the more colourful characters and compositions in the world of classical music. And this week, we're going to explore a piece of music about which someone wrote online. It starts so innocently, and then it just turns into a war zone. (laughs) that's an accurate description i absolutely oh yes stravinsky is who we're talking about today igor stravinsky uh russian composer pianist conductor he's also a key player in one of the most notorious performances of the 20th century but before we get to the scandal and the good stuff i thought you might want to learn a little bit about the man himself uh stravinsky once said about his own music my music is best understood by children and animals. So (laughs) not really sure uh, if he was a great lover of children or animals, but I will say he did once compose a ballet commissioned by Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus for 50 elephants and 50 beautiful girls. Uh, The show closed in two months, so not exactly a hit, but (laughs) while it lasted, Igor was the only elephant ballet composer in the world so that's well apparently cool. he's also frank zappa's favorite composer so yes exactly he's 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 a hit i mean he's really yeah um igor's taste in women was certainly unconventional his first wife was his first cousin and his second wife was still married to her first husband when she and igor tied the knot so fun Rizzi. times mm-hmm. yeah uh, stravinsky was a student of nikolai rimsky korsakov who was apparently the kind of teacher who believed in tough love uh young stravinsky once took a new com- uh, composition to rimsky korsakov who told his student the piece was disgusting and that it was not permissible to write such nonsense until one is 60. So there you go. 60 apparently is the cutoff. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have my doubts about how much Stravinsky actually cared about his teacher's opinion, though, because uh, especially considering the fact that Igor has made his name composing ballet scores, even though Rimsky-Korsakov and his set sort of looked down on the ballet as a place suitable only for dirty old men and their binoculars. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> but 
Stravinsky, he, I mean, he's got this really beautiful, unique style that was made for ballet. His music is visceral. It has this ability to affect humans on a physical level. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to that. <laughs> Stravinsky's <laughs> first ballet score, the Firebird Ballet, was a milestone. At the premiere in Paris, no one had ever heard anything like it. Uh, it had these really complex rhythms and strange dissonance. It was bold. It was exciting. Uh, the second ballet, he, he followed that up, and uh, it was it was even even more exciting. Uh, it was called Petrushka. It's all about the antics of a sex-starved puppet. So good good topic. I mean, the audience <laughs> ate it up. Uh, not so for the third attempt. The third attempt was where things kind of fell apart a little bit. So in 1913, we've got 31-year-old Igor. He wrote this bombshell, the right of spring. The subtitle of the ballet is Scenes of Pagan Russia. So good times. <laughs> Stravinsky wrote of his inspiration, I saw in my imagination a solemn pagan rite. Sage elders seated in a circle watched a young girl dance herself to death. Good times, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the piece itself, I would say it is the musical equivalent of a baseball bat in the gut. Uh, it's harsh, it's short, repetitive fragments, jarring dissonance, instruments screaming at the edge of their ranges, hideous, pounding, brutal rhythms. In short, it's a masterpiece. Pure <laughs> freaking genius. I mean, that's my opinion anyway, but I'm an unsophisticated, brash American in the year 2020. Now, the refined Paris audience at the premiere of the Rite of Spring in May of 1913, they were a different set. So Romola Nijinsky, who is a dancer and the wife of the choreographer, was present at this event. And she imagined, you know, the public might be a little, a little fidgety and a little uncomfortable uh, because the, the material was edgy. But no one was prepared for what actually happened. Romola writes... The audience began to behave itself, not as the dignified audience of Paris, but as a bunch of naughty, ill-mannered children. <laughs> People Love started it. hissing, they were booing, they were shouting, they were screaming, they were fighting amongst themselves. Uh, the, the police were called, it was a riot. And at one point, the crowd became so loud, the dancers couldn't hear the orchestra. But did they stop? No, they did not. <laughs> Nijinsky, the choreographer, he just stood up on a chair and started shouting out the counts to the dancers. And a dance critic who was in the audience recalls a young man behind him jumped up and started rhythmically pounding his fists on top of the critic's head. So, I mean, it was a party. I've been to this party. It's, it's a good time, but it's a little scary. So, <laughs> now, there is, there is some debate about whether it was the music or the dancing that set people off. They were both pretty, you know, they were pushing the envelope for when it came to the norm of the day. The primitive dancing might have been as viscerally shocking as Igor's music. And the combination of the two, I think, was maybe just a bit too much. It was just a little too shocking to the system. So it is also possible that the story has grown and maybe even been exaggerated. I don't know anyone who exaggerates their stories, but <laughs> there are also those who believe that the whole thing was a publicity stunt that went horribly wrong or horribly right, as the case may be. I mean, it did launch Igor Stravinsky to international stardom. So there is that. I prefer to believe that what we saw 
in that theater in Paris in 1913 was a huge scientific experiment about the power of music on the human brain. Now, when it comes to music and what we like, it's all about patterns. We like patterns. As we're listening, our brain is actually making predictions about what the sound is that we're going to hear next. And when what we hear matches that prediction or surpasses our expectation, our brain gives us a little rush, like the same rush we get when we enjoy great sex or delicious food. Um, it's interesting to note also that most animals just get these kind of rewards from satisfying things needed for survival. But humans get this rush from abstract or aesthetic things like art and poetry and, of course, music. So there, there could be a case made that we actually do need art to survive. But it can't just be any art or music. It has to be stuff that we enjoy. Because as we saw with the Paris riot, music also has the power to trigger that fight or flight instinct in us, too. That dissonance can actually be very... Uh, viscerally affected. I mean, think about the shower scene from the movie Psycho. I don't even need to play you a clip. If you're familiar with that film and that scene, your brain is probably already making your body tense up a little bit. Your heart rate is increasing. Uh, just the memory of that music is, is powerful enough to affect you. And that's the same kind of effect that we saw with the Rite of Spring at its premiere. So I should say, when it comes to music, familiarity does not breed contempt. Quite the opposite, in fact. The more the Rite of Spring was performed, the more people loved it. Or at least they were able to listen to it without pummeling their neighbor. Uh, Walt Disney even used it in, uh, even used excerpts from the Rite of Spring in Fantasia, which, you know, we all play for our kids nowadays, and they don't kill each other while they're listening to it. Well, most of the time. Uh, today's audiences will most likely find the Rite of Spring interesting and exciting, especially if they're like me and they've enjoyed a healthy dose of action and horror films in their past. Uh, let's see what you think. I have provided you with a snippet from a recording that uh, Stravinsky himself conducted on the podium with uh, the Columbia Orchestra in New York, New York City in 1961.
Good Lord. That was the end of part two of Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. I can see why people suggest that this provoked the first mosh pit and that it is about as heavy metal as classical music gets, with anger and violence and disturbance and dissonance and anxiety and pounding insanity. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Maybe not everybody's cup of tea. I think it's interesting that apparently right after that performance in 1913, he got typhoid. So there you go. What yeah. do you know? <laughs> I don't think the two were connected. <laughs> anyway. So what else? You've got a couple of online things happening with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. Can you tell us quickly about those before we yeah, close? Yeah. So we've got a longer version of these segments that we've been doing with you. We call it the Mosey Mixer. We're going to invite friends, bring their own drinks, have a casual happy hour with Trent Rash and myself. We'll regale you with scintillating stories of the great composers and hopefully share a few laughs. Uh, our first one is going to be next Friday, April 17th at 530. And then on Saturday, April 18th, we'll have coffee with the conductor. Maestro Kirk Trevor will be on to chat, answer questions, and maybe even teach us a thing or two. You can visit our Facebook page or themosey.org for info on either of those. And we can find links there to both of those yes. events. And are yeah. they going to be Zoom chats? Zoom chats all, yes. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah, we're not... We're not getting together quite yet because, you know, we need to socially distance so we don't throw vegetables at each other or anything. So. <laughs> I think if, if we're listening to Igor Stravinsky, it might be better that actually we're in isolation from each other. <laughs> Precisely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you, Monica Palmer. Trent or Monica will be back next week with more news from the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. Until then, take care not to listen to Stravinsky while holding any heavy objects in the proximity <laughs> of another human being. Lovely. And that is it for today today's show. Thank you so much for staying at home and for listening. I'll be back next week with more ideas and happenings that can help us stay artfully nourished. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Mm -hmm.